Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. So we're continuing in our series called Live a Better Story, where we're discovering what, it, what does it mean that there are great stories out there and stories that aren't as compelling and moving. And how can we live a better story if our lives are telling stories? How can we live a better story? And so if you, just, I'm going to give a quick recap, because I know we have some people who uh, don't go to church every Sunday, or some people have jumped in since we began. So there are four different elements that we've already, uh, three elements that we've already talked about. We've talked about the exposition, which is the beginning of a story. We've talked about protagonist, which is one of the characters in which the story uses. There's conflict in every story, or else it's a boring story that no one cares about, right? It's a boring uh, story that doesn't move. And this week, we're going to talk about crisis. Now, what's interesting to me is, as you kind of think about this, these are elements that are common in, in most stories. What's interesting to me is if you look at the big story of the Bible, if you're to like zoom way out of the Bible, the Bible is not a collection of random stories that are just kind of like, you know, like modge-podge together. They're actually telling a grand story from the beginning of Genesis all the way to Revelation. God is telling a story. And isn't it interesting that it follows this pattern? Beginning of the Bible and Genesis sets the whole context of the way we understand the rest of the story. Without understanding Genesis, we're not going to understand uh, why we exist, why we're here, who we are, who God is, and why is this world so broken? Why is there so much pain and sorrow in this world? It's all told there in the first three chapters of Genesis. But then the story moves on after everything kind of unraveled, then God started using in Genesis and Exodus, we find that God over and over again starts showing that there's protagonists in God's story, people who have been chosen by God, unlikely people who are being formed by the author to play the role that they were called to play. And as the story continues, this is especially during, if you're familiar with uh, the people of God moving from Egypt of slavery through the wilderness, they find a ton of conflict as they start to find their home, their home in Israel, their home as God's people, and their home with God. And if you were to continue to follow the story, it ends up in a crisis. The latter part of the Old Testament uh, it's called the prophets, and this, this is a repeating story of God's people, their inability to choose to be faithful to God. So time and time again, there is this cycle of, of trust and mistrust where people turn from God and turn to other things, and it, it, you even see it embodied in the fact that they're taken off as captives, they're taken off of captives from the promised land that God had for them. And this is the part of the movie, the part of the, the story that you just kind of hope, like, oh, please don't let the story be over with. Please don't let this movie end now. If, if I see the credits scroll down, I'm going to be so angry. This is the part of the moment called the crisis, where the tension is the highest. And for us, as we think about stories and we think about God's bigger story, we are experiencing these different elements in our own life. The crisis can happen in our life as well. It's when you hope that our story isn't over. It's where there's a lot of tension. Um, It's where our spiritual life and our own world gets turned upside down. 
And uh, it, if, it were to, if the story were to end right then, it would be a story called a tragedy, right? But God doesn't write tragedies in our life story. In the Christian tradition, though, it's common for people to experience this. People have also called it hitting the wall. It's where you, are, you hit a something in your spiritual life and you can't break through it. There's just seems like there's no getting past it. And it's a difficult thing. Our faith life doesn't seem to work as it had in the past. We experience a crisis. We question ourselves. We question our faith. We question God. And this season is trying. You hope. You hope that the credits don't start scrolling down. Now what can give us hope is that we can see again and again and again this crisis moment happens to almost every hero of the faith that we can find in God's Word. I just dare you to think of or try to find someone in the Christian tradition or in our scriptures who didn't have a crisis moment. It's a part of being human, and it's a part of following God. Uh, We find that also in the life of a man named Elijah. Elijah was a prophet, which means he was someone through, uh, through whom God spoke to God's people. And he lived in a time, he was a devout man in a, in a time of great wickedness where uh, they had some of Israel's worst leaders, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And their betrayal of God, uh, God's people and these uh, king and queen, ended up having a showdown. And this is in 1 Kings 18. There was a showdown between 450 priests of a, a god called Baal that they were, had crafted and worshipped. And so it's 450 priests. And then there's Elijah and God. So that's the kind of like, imagine 450 and Elijah. And the whole nation stopped to see what's going to happen. This is like prehistoric biblical WWF showdown. And they're watching this. And what the story teaches us, as I've heard uh, from a friend, is that when it's God plus one, it's always a majority. It's always enough. And so what ends up happening with this showdown is there are two different altars, and the priests of Baal were praying that their, their God would uh, to light up their, their priest in fire. And nothing, could happen, nothing happened to it. And then Elijah got water, doused, doused the uh, the place where they're going to have the offering. And then immediately, God's fire came down in this dramatic way. And after that, these storms came in and relieved this drought. And all of those priests, all of those priests were destroyed. And so this was a great moment in the life of Elijah. For, this, for the people, they saw this happen, and they, they remembered who God was, and they turned their heart towards God, and they also trusted Elijah. You would think, like, this is, golly, this is the mountaintop experience of his leadership. But there is a backside to it. The backside problem of it was this. He really upset a powerful woman. In verse 2, this is 1 Kings 19. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them, one of those priests. So Elijah ran for his life. He gone. Elijah can face 450 priests of Baal. He can handle these men and this power. But this angry, powerful queen, 
Uh, he turns and runs. I get it. I've had some angry women in my life, and uh, turning and running has not been a bad idea. Uh, when he came to a place called Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. So he dismisses his only companion, his only, only person along with the journey with him. He dismisses him. He's now alone in the wilderness, which is usually the context for our crisis. We even talk about our spiritual crisis in our own life. I just feel like I'm in a wilderness period. And so here is Elijah. While he, was, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, uh, which in the wilderness might be the only shade he could find, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Isn't it funny that for Elijah, he just came from this spiritual like high, this incredible encounter where God showed off his power and his presence and Elijah was lifted up. And then like verses later, he's done. Like he, he I can't go anymore. And it's just been the case in my life where oftentimes where I feel like I'm in a season where I'm, I have some some event happen, a retreat or something like that, where I feel really close to God. And it's what I've learned almost is to prepare for there to be a big problem when I get done with this. For Elijah, he came down from this spiritual mountaintop and he got back into the wilderness of despair where that victory was like almost forgotten completely. And I've experienced this in my own darkness I find very deeply challenging seasons in my life right after really intimate, wonderful, joy-filled experiences. And Elijah was even suicidal. He's like, I I don't want to live anymore. Take my life. Kill me now. I'm done. This is just helpful for us to stop and notice that deep sadness and depression is not a sign of spiritual immaturity. Elijah had walked with God. like He was like the most spiritually mature person. Yes, we are called to be people of hope, but there are people, if you're following God, does not mean you're going to be without despair. It's a part of the human experience. Again, almost every one of the giants of our faith, whether in Scripture or in real life, we can look at they've had darkness in our life. And it might be comforting for us to remember again that this is not the end of the story. So notice how God responds to Elijah's deep, deep sadness. Elijah, get up. Get happy. Who do you think you are? You're supposed to be an example. Take your life. You're depressed. Come on. People are watching you. No, instead, this happens in verse 5. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals, a jar of water, He ate and drank and then lay down again. God provided for Elijah in his despair. And sometimes what we need when we feel empty, when we just feel like we can't move on, maybe we need to worship and pray. But sometimes we need a nap. Sometimes we need some chicken noodle soup and for someone to care for us. And I just, I'm so proud of who you are as a church, that you guys care for each other. You guys provide meals for each other. That's spiritual work, what you've done, what you're doing. That's how God's providing for Elijah. 
In verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for your journey is too much for you. Then he got up, he ate and drank, strengthened by the food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Now, this is something that might get lost on us because um, we maybe aren't familiar with the geography of the Old Testament, but places hold meaning, really deep meaning. And you know this in your own life. Some places hold meaning. You can go back to a place and it's like, oh yeah, I remember when this happened or that. I remember in college, I had like this really huge heartbreak and I was so angry because like I couldn't go back to my favorite restaurant because she ruined it. I go like, go back there and like, oh, I can't eat here anymore. So that's when, whenever I started taking girls out on dates, I'd always take them to Arby's. There's just <laughs> no, no threat. Girl, get yourself a mocha shake. You deserve it. And curly fries. But places hold meaning. So this, if, if you're familiar with the story uh, preceding Elijah, if you're, if you're a part of the Jewish faith or even the Christian faith and you're familiar with the story of God, you would see Elijah 40 days and 40 nights wandering into, the, into Horeb, maybe even to this cave and go, oh, like light, light bulbs would be going off. And there's a reason for that. Generations before that, a man named Moses was leading the stubborn Hebrew nation through the desert. And along that journey, Moses became insecure. Notice the similarity. Because the people turned from God and started worshiping other idols. And Moses felt alone in it. They had rebelled against God. So he felt alone and, and he had this crisis moment. So what did God do? God met with Moses where? On Mount Horeb, the same place. And this is in Exodus 33. Notice what God gives Moses. Exodus 33, 14. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Notice that promise. What do we need in a spiritual crisis where we're depleted? Two different promises. Rest, because you're so exhausted and weary. But more than that, you need to know that God is still with you. God, I just need to know you're with me today. I can't do it today. I'm just, I, can't, I can't go today if, you're not, if I don't know that you're with me. And so God gives the gift of presence. And so what does God do? God said, I want to be with you. I want you to stand on a cl- this cleft of the rock which is another way to say a cave, an opening. And my presence is going to pass by you. This would be a benchmark for Moses' life, a tender moment where God showed up in the midst of his crisis to give him rest and to give him his presence. And maybe, just maybe, generations later, Elijah's here at this cave looking for God's presence, looking for rest in his crisis. So back to Elijah. He mirrors Moses' complaint about God's people and says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites, they've rejected your covenant. They tore down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. my, My life is being threatened, God. I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. Elijah is bringing his honesty to God. 
You can call it confession. You can call it complaining. You can call it prayer or petition. But Elijah is bringing to God what's driving his sorrow. He feels so comfortable in God's presence where he can actually be honest. And that's the only way through the crisis moments in our life is through honesty. Honesty, yes, with God. And so that's what Elijah does for and, and here, here is how the Lord responds in verse 11. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Very similar to Moses. Then, it, this changes though. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. The Lord, and then after the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Remember, Elijah just saw God move with fire. But here in this moment, the Lord wasn't in the fire. Remember, Elijah just saw God move storms and wind, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. Elijah knew familiar, he was very familiar with the fact that God can create an earthquake, but God was not here in an earthquake for Elijah. Where was God? God was in this gentle whisper. It's interesting, some of the scholars who think, they think a more faithful translation of this gentle whisper is, after the fire, God spoke in the sheer silence. The culmination of God's power to show up in the midst of Elijah's crisis was to speak through sheer silence. And this is both, in my own life, I can attest, this is both comforting and challenging. Why? Because when we're in our crisis moment, like we want God to move. <laughs> God, knock down this wall. Take care of this thing. I need you to show up in power. I need you to, to, to move in power. I, I need to see this. And sometimes what God gives us is his presence in silence. When we're looking for answers, we get God's presence in silence. When we're praying for that miracle, God shows up in presence in silence. Am I alone in experiencing that in my life? And sometimes when the Lord does speak, we don't like what he says. The story continues in verse 14. Then the voice said to Elijah, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go back to the desert, the, the desert of Damascus. After this 40-day journey, really just go back? Really? Like, you're just going to speak to me in silence and send me back? 40 days. Can you just give me a different route so I don't have to go the same route? Uh, but he's sent back because his story's not over. He won't suffer without purpose. If you were to keep reading, and this story's so beautiful, I wish we had the time for it, but if you were to keep reading, God is sending him back there because God's writing another chapter. He has in his heart and his mind, he's ready to pin it. He just needs Elijah to be there. And what does Elijah not know is that God had already prepared a new king. And that God was going to use Elijah to anoint him king over Israel. 
What Elijah didn't know is that there's going to be someone who's going to follow up in his steps. His name is Elisha, which would be very confusing for people reading this story many years later, that there's Elijah and Elisha. Which one? I don't know. Just we'll combine them. But there's a man named Elisha who would be a prophet who would follow in Elijah's uh, space, in his footsteps. Oh, and Elijah, you didn't know this, but God had saved 7,000 people who hadn't turned to another idol, hadn't turned to Baal, hadn't worshipped other things, haven't, haven't been rebellious to God. 7,000 people in Israel had been waiting for you, for a leader. They haven't lost their faith. Elijah needs to go back because the story is not over. And my guess is this encounter with meeting God, not with an earthquake or fire or wind, but meeting God in the sound of sheer silence, I wonder, and I just believe, that if this had marked Elijah's life from then on out, that this formed something in him that was fundamental not only to how he saw himself, but also how he experienced God. And this ended up being a gift, a gift not only to him, but for the whole nation. That's what can happen in a crisis. That's how God can redeem it. Donald Miller spoke of this when he, and he wrote this. He said, negative turns, if you think about our life story, the negative turns are the seeds that will one day grow the fruit that will feed others. Our pain, our tragedy, our sorrow, our crisis won't be wasted. In the hands of a redeemer, the seeds will grow fruit that will feed many people. And it could be the same way if we do so in our own life. If you haven't had a crisis moment in your faith, maybe this message is meant to prepare you. Maybe you've had one way back when and you've kind of forgotten about it, how God showed up in the midst of it. Or maybe you're actually in it right now. When it comes to this challenging wall that we hit, that we wish God would just break down to get past what we realize is this, and I have bad news, that the bad news is this, there's no jumping over the wall, there's no digging out from underneath it, and there's no help in running the other direction. And to make matters worse, the bad news gets worse when just to know this, that God is not in a hurry to get you through it. He doesn't want to microwave it, because it's doing something. It's doing something in you. This is so hard. This is why many characters get stuck when they hit this wall. It's because they, it's just hard. It's hard to wait faithfully through the crisis. It's hard to wait to listen to the sh- sound of sheer silence. It makes me think of Mrs. Habersham in the, great, the, the, the novel Great Expectation, who, uh, who when she was stood up on her wedding day, the world stopped. And rather than moving through it, she never changed from her wedding dress the rest of her life, always with one shoe on. Every clock she had stopped right at that minute. Why? She got stuck there, and she didn't want to move on. But if we go through the crisis, if we are actually find a way, God promises not to waste it. And this is how you move through the wall. We remain faithfully present with God. We don't master our way through it or engineer our way through it. We stay faithfully and prayerfully present with God. We pray and we wait and we watch. 
This is what makes me think of when I, when I read Lamentations 3, 24 through 26. And the book of Lamentations is really about this crisis moment. And this is what that passage said. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. In the midst of my suffering, midst of the crisis, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And if I know one thing about this generation that we live in is we hate waiting. We're not, we're not well suited to get through crisis. But in the waiting, in the waiting, something profound happens to us. Our hearts get reoriented around God. 16th century a Catholic priest by the name of St. John of the Cross, he wrote extensively about this experience. He actually penned the phrase, the dark night of the soul. Anyone ever heard of that phrase, the dark night of the soul? That's where it came from, St. John of the Cross. He wrote extensively about it. But he talked about the dark night of the soul as a period of refining, this burning of the dross, a refining moment. And one of the aspects that are refined in us is the tendency to become attached to the feelings of and about God, mistaking them for God himself. One of the things that happens in Christian life is we become attached to the benefits of God and less attached to God. We, we find ourselves in throughout life loving the hands of God, but neglecting perhaps God. And so one of the things that happens in a crisis moment, one of the things that happens for us is that this experience of God has been refined. And we are left wondering, can I still embrace God even if none of the benefits are obvious or seem present here? So when the crisis moments happen, it's so disorienting. We learn, though, if we love God, or if we love God's gifts. Yet, if we faithfully stay present in the crisis, if we faithfully wait, all of a sudden our taste buds get reoriented to delight and enjoy God for no other reason than we get to enjoy God. That perhaps is why in Lamentations they declared, the Lord is our portion. Not only our provider, but the Lord is our portion. It's him. And as our hearts become more attached to God and nothing else, a lifelong transformation happens when our heart and our soul and our future have been placed in the very heart of God, where we actually know what it means to be still and know that I am God. All of our crisis moments will lead us to this realization, but also lead us to another realization that we can't do this alone. We need a hero. That's what we're talking about next week. Many, century, many centuries later, Elijah appeared once more on a mountain. This would be called the Mount of Transfiguration. And this time it was Jesus who went up the mountain, looking towards the crisis of his cross, the moment of despair that was before him, and even experiencing death. And the voice of God broke in the silence of that moment and said, this is my son, whom I love. 
In him I'm well pleased. But then the voice added this. Listen to him. Listen to him. That is what we do in our crisis. We go to Christ, we humble ourselves, and we listen. Sometimes to the sound of sheer silence. But when the Lord leads us down this mountain, we will not be the same.